During the 20th century, branding and advertising became central to shaping our ideas of what the good life is and how it can be realised through our consumption of commercial products and experiences. Branding and advertising are a fundamental part of our media culture. In advertiser-funded media, like newspapers, magazines, television and social media, brands are arguably the critical component. These media businesses depend on creating value for brands. Without funds flowing from advertisers, the business model would collapse. By following brands and how they change over time, we can understand how media are used to exercise power and organise cultural life. To begin, my provocation is that during the 20th century, brands operated predominantly in an ideological fashion. They purchased advertisements in mass media like newspapers, radio and television. And those advertisements made claims about the qualities of products or the people who consumed them. If consumers found those claims persuasive or appealing, they would go on and buy the products. By the late 20th century, however, brands had become woven into our lives and identities in more complicated ways. This process kicked off in the 1960s with the creative revolution. Advertising creatives like Bill Bernback created a style of anti-advertising that played on the public's mistrust of advertisers. He created advertisements that critiqued the mass society and poked fun at advertising itself. By making this move, advertising was no longer caught up in trying to protect the sincerity of its own claims. Instead, advertising acknowledged that savvy consumers had grown cynical about the claims that brands made and responded by weaving themselves into the everyday lives and identities of consumers. Advertisements made less emphatic claims about the qualities of their products and instead began to make claims about the hip and savvy people who consumed them. Advertisers began to devise ways to let consumers play a role in attaching whatever meanings they liked to brands. In the past decade, social media platforms have engineered a system of media that works entirely on the terms set by brands. Platforms like Facebook, Instagram and increasingly Snapchat depend on attracting money from brands to make a profit. And so they are invested in engineering a platform for participatory and data-driven promotion that brands want to pay for. Branding on social media is participatory in the sense that we weave brands into the depiction of our everyday lives. And it is data-driven in the sense that we submit to surveillance of our expressions, movements, preferences and relationships. And this data is incorporated into the algorithmic judgments that platforms make in targeting branded content at us. Brands are not just logos, they are social processes. By this we mean that to understand how brands work, we need to pay attention not just to the advertisements, but to how brands weave themselves into our social and cultural life. From the mid-20th century, brands and advertisements began to transition beyond simply informational claims about a product to more deliberately position products within desirable ways of life. Advertisements didn't just teach consumers about product attributes, they also taught consumers about how to incorporate products within their lifestyles. Brands began to act as a kind of instruction manual for how to live the good life. Here's a Folgers coffee advertisement from the 1950s. Oh, this coffee is criminal! Honey, you killed the petunias! Then you admit it. 
Your coffee really is murder. Papa Eddie, my coffee, it's murder. It's either too bitter or too weak. Try Folgers. Never bitter, never weak, always nice and rich. Because Folgers coffee is mountain grown. You know it's a crime not to have delicious coffee like this all the time. We will now that I've discovered the mountains. Folgers coffee ads are all over YouTube because they're an infamous example of the sexism of mid-century advertising. In this one, a young housewife seeks advice on how to please her husband, who is dissatisfied with the coffee that she is making at home. Papa Eddie suggests that Folgers is better because it is never bitter. Here, the advertisements makes a definitive claim about the qualities of the product. The coffee is natural, not bitter, grown in the mountains. Advertising and branding started out making these kinds of claims about the specific attributes of products, and they still do this, of course. But this isn't the whole story. Folgers also position their coffee within an idealised suburban life, complete with his antiquated gender norms. The claim being made is not just that Folgers coffee tastes good, but that you, the housewife, should buy Folgers coffee because it would please your husband that consuming this kind of coffee makes you a good housewife, something it assumes women want to be. The advertisement doesn't just say something about the quality of coffee. It makes a claim about the kind of person who buys this coffee. It addresses women as if they desire to be a good housewife. This advertisement, of course, would not work today because it doesn't fit with today's norms and values. A brand could not successfully address women in this way. This is how brands work as social processes. They reflect the cultural norms of the specific cultural setting that they operate within. Brands have a long history of doing this, especially of engaging with the gender norms of a given society. Here's a famous Australian example. How does it happen? You're coaching the crew, or printing the news, or straining till you thought you would burst. You sure got a thirst. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. A long cold Vic. It can come in VB's hard-earned thirst advertisements, real men, men who do manual labour, play football, drive utes, drink VB. The ad says more or less, who wouldn't want to be one of these real men? The ad is from the 1970s, and let's note an important difference with the Folgers coffee ad from the 1950s. The VB ad says nothing about the product itself. It only talks about the kind of man that consumes that product. The ad positions the product within a way of life and its identities. This ad represents what the consumption of a product means and what it says about the consumer. Throughout the 20th century, brands increasingly put themselves at the centre of our cultural experiences. Since the turn of the millennium, Brands have also increasingly established themselves as platforms for ethical and political action. They offer opportunities or tools for us to act as ethical consumers. Here's an example from Singapore. Third Eye Viewfinder Image I see a small stream in the foreground. Shape an extra ply. 
A mobile phone company launches an app that helps vision-impaired people navigate the world. They take a photo with their phone, share it to an app, and micro-volunteers write a description of what's in the image. The brand offers a tool to help people be ethical or good consumers. The brand offers tools for you to act out your values and ethics. The brand becomes part of how you see yourself as a good person in the world. The brand helps you turn your values into tangible actions. We see this kind of appeal from brands everywhere we go. When we buy Starbucks coffee, we're told it's not just a cup of coffee, but a coffee ethics that we're buying. The coffee is fair trade, sustainable, contributes toward development projects and so on. When we buy Tom's shoes, a pair of shoes is sent to the developing world. In a cafe I was in this morning, I could buy toilet paper in the bathroom with the profits going to sanitation projects in the developing world. In each of these cases, the brand is saying don't just buy the product and its particular attributes, the coffee, the shoes, the toilet paper. It's also saying buy a certain ethics, an opportunity to feel good about yourself and convey your values to the world in a small way to share the good life with others. When we purchase products, we're often making decisions not just about the specific attributes or uses of the product, but also what purchasing that product says about us, our taste, our politics, our ethics, our values. The problem, though, is that this can feel kind of futile. We somehow feel responsible in our individual consumption choices for larger political, social and market structures. Here's a provocative illustration of this dilemma from the satire of hipster life in Portland, Oregon. Portlandia, the famous chicken scene. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. So the hazelnuts, these are local? Uh, how big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Mm. Give me just a second. Mm. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Okay. Feels nice. Right? You're doing the right thing. I'm too apologetic. You are. I, I drove way too slow here today, didn't I? Yeah. I'm so weird with that gas pedal. I think just moves the whole vehicle forward now. All right, so here is the chicken you'll be oh, enjoying yeah. tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Here are his papers, okay? That's great. He, he looks what? like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Putting his little wing around another one and kind of like you know, palling around. I don't know that I can speak to that level of uh, intimate knowledge about him. Um, they do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. When yeah. you say they, I mean, who are these people raising Colin? It's a farm that's located about uh, 30 miles south of Portland. And, 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 so in the scene, we have two hip ethical consumers deliberating about whether to eat an organic chicken. It's satire, but it contains a kernel of truth. In these moments when we feel our individual consumption decisions have larger ramifications, we somehow feel a sense of absurd responsibility. The decision to eat a chicken isn't just a decision about feeling hungry or what you like to eat, it's also a decision about your ethics and values and your role in perpetuating a system of industrial farming. Here's the thing though, individual moments of consumption are probably not where larger market dynamics get changed.
better or more ethical farming, for instance, could only emerge through collective action, policy change, industry accountability, regulatory frameworks, and so on. Ethical consumption is arguably then more often a way for brands to present themselves as in sync with our values or to offer us symbolic resources to convey our values rather than a really politically effective way of changing the world. This discussion alerts us though to the various ways in which consumption is hard work. Not just because choosing particular products and brands conveys our ethics and values, but also because of the ways in which our consumption decisions convey our sense of taste. Often this is part of a kind of loop between our consumption practices and our social media use. When we go to cool venues or fancy restaurants or buy new clothes, they'll often appear conspicuously or subtly in our social media profiles. By taking photos of ourselves and our lives and uploading them into our networks, we say something about our taste, and in doing so, we incorporate brands into our narratives about ourselves. Our consumption choices can say a lot about us. In the Netflix comedy series Master of None by Aziz Ansari, there's a wonderful scene where he's obsessively searching Google and Yelp to try and find the best taco truck in New York. He spends so long looking for the best taco truck that by the time he finds it, it's shut. The scene is cutting because it says something about how many of us spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best place to go. Where's the best bar? Where's the best restaurant? Where's the best place to hang out? These are the judgments of making tasteful consumption decisions. Furthermore, our media devices, apps and platforms are central to this work of searching, evaluating, locating the best consumer options, and then, once we've made our choice, promoting our good judgement to our peer networks in the forms of images, updates and ratings. We pull out our phone and research the best place to go for a drink with friends. Once we're there, we use the phone to take photos and tell everyone what a great decision we made. If, during the past generation, brands came to rely more and more on our capacity to incorporate them within our lives, then social media provides the tools for dramatically intensifying these practices. On social media, brands rely less and less on telling us what to think, and more and more on providing us with the resources we need to include brands within the streams of images, videos, comments and likes that we create. Brands teach us something profound about how our current media system operates. This is a media system organised around the logics of participation and surveillance. Participation, the continuous translation of our lived experience into images, comments and ratings. We do the work of creating narratives about our consumer culture that our peers see. This enables an incredibly powerful form of branding to emerge one where brands can operate in highly reflexive and customised ways. A brand can come to mean many different things, depending on the cultural context and social network within which it is being made meaningful by consumers. The same brand can mean different things to different groups at the same time. And surveillance. Brands can operate in a more participatory and open-ended way, because social media platforms facilitate the translation of lived experience into streams of data, this data enables brands to make more granular predictions about how to respond to consumers in increasingly customised ways. On social media platforms, brands don't rely on our sincere belief in their claims. 
as much as they rely on our continuous participatory incorporation of them into our lives and our willingness for them to monitor us.